Let's get, get rolling here this morning. Uh, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be kicking off the new series uh, in Ruth. Ruth is Old Testament, so immediately your mind should be going back to kind of like Old Testament context. You'll find Judges, the book of Judges, then Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel. So if you hit Judges or 1st and 2nd Samuel, you're in the ballpark of getting to Ruth. So we're going to be kicking off uh, this series this morning just in the first five verses. So we're not covering a whole lot, but actually in those first five verses, we're plunged into the, to the tension of the book as it then gets played out uh, through the rest of the four chapters. Uh, one of the things that I wanted to mention before we jumped into this series is to refer a few books to you if you're interested in doing a little more study uh, along with this series. The first book I don't have with me, uh, but it's by Sinclair Ferguson called Faithful God. Uh, it's probably one of the better uh, books that does just kind of line by line, section by section explanation of the text itself. So Sinclair Ferguson, Faithful God, fantastic uh, resource. If you want to dive more so just into the nitty gritty of the text itself, into the story itself. The second resource that I want to throw before you is more of a supplemental resource. It's not necessarily about uh, the book of Ruth, and yet it is a book that um, kind of works you through a biblical view of lament. Like, what do you do in the midst of suffering? What we will see in the story of Ruth is incredible sufferings are going on. And, and this book, just like, how, how do I take steps forward in the midst of my suffering? It gives a bit of a theology of lament, but in a way that I believe is helpful. Uh, just as I mentioned earlier, when it comes to suffering, the goodness and greatness of God becomes tensions for our souls. We, we usually kind of like be like, okay, God can be sovereign and like in my sufferings, but he certainly isn't good. And that becomes much of the tension that we work through in the midst of suffering. This book then helps us kind of bring those two together and how we go to God with our complaints and our tensions in a way in which we're actually exercising faith, not just sitting back in our disgruntledness. Uh, so it's a wonderful supplement to the story of Ruth. I'd recommend it. There's actually three uh, copies in the back room on the bookshelf there if you'd like to pick that book up. All right, let's jump into it. Ruth chapter one. We're just going to read the first five, five verses together, take a few simple points uh, from it and then uh, give some application. So Ruth chapter 1, it says this, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Chilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah, which is simply to say they're from Bethlehem. <laughs> they went into the country of Moab, and this is an important phrase, and they remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died and she was left with her two sons. 
These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about 10 years, and both Malon and Chilion died, so that the women uh, so that the woman was left without her two sons, the woman Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. Uh, what, a, what a wonderful thing, right? This morning to be talking about. All right, let's go ahead and ask the Lord to help us. God, as we come to your word, uh, we, we, desire, we desire to know your goodness and your greatness. We want to be a people, God, who... Um, even in the midst of great, deep, dark sufferings. We want to be a people who contend, who contend to know your greatness and your goodness. So God, teach us. Teach us from this story of Ruth. Teach us how how to walk out suffering. Teach us how to take bold risks of faith and, and be those who are courageous in, in, in the circumstances that you've placed us in to see your name ultimately glorified, to see ultimately your hand of redemption in our lives. So God, we place our hearts before you this morning for all the nuances to these things. God, we surrender them to you, ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would come. You would take the, the nuances and, and bring them rightly to our hearts and minds. So we trust that you'll be working in our midst as we walk through your word together. Bless it, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. My continued uh, burden for our church is that we would be a people who fight, who, as we've talked about, contend to know the goodness of God, even amidst terrible suffering. Uh, it's my hope that we as a church would establish something of a culture, right? Uh, that we would contend to know the goodness of God amidst terrible sufferings and seek to honor God in that way. Uh, that we wouldn't be a people just good to like kind of passively sit back in our disgruntled with our disgruntledness with God, but that we would fight to say that we would fight to declare that He is good until in some way our souls, our hearts know something of His goodness. I think when Paul speaks of that fight of faith, this is a category that goes into that. That we would be a people who, when suffering hit, yes, we go through the grief. Yes, we, are, we feel the darkness of the valley of the shadow of death. But we are a people who say, all right, I am going to wrestle with my God to know his goodness. Not just going to sit back and say, well, I guess he's sovereign and we'll leave it at that. No, we want to be a, a people who fight to know the goodness of our God even amidst life's darkest and most terrible suffering. My burden is this, as I've prayed through it, this, this is the language that it's come to me in, and I, I want us to be a people who fight to know both the transcendent goodness of God, the transcendent goodness of God is that 
oh yeah, God is going to take my suffering somewhere. My suffering is just not an end in itself because my God is transcendent over my suffering and his transcendence is good in the fact that he's taking my suffering to a good end. That's why Romans, that Romans 8 passage, all things work together for good. We hate that passage at times, right? It's like it's wonderful at sometimes, it's awful at other times. Like That's not a text I want to hear right now in my suffering. Folks, I, I want us not only to fight to know the transcendent goodness of God, that all things will work out for our good for those who are in Christ, but also that we would fight to know his imminent goodness, his near goodness in the midst of our sufferings. Right? It's not just transcendent goodness, but it's also the imminent goodness of God, that he's meeting us in these moments. And yeah, while we at times can't even see his goodness around us, darkness prevails, it's nonetheless to say, okay, I know as a Christian that part of my role now is to fight to know the imminent goodness of my God. For he promises to be with me. He promises that the water will not overtake me. He promises that the fire will not ultimately scorch me. He will bring me through. Oh God, I will fight to know your imminent goodness. That's, that's my desire for us as a church. It doesn't mean we can't just read this book, right? It doesn't mean we can't complain to God, right? Exercising our faith in those kind of ways. But oh, to be a people who, 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 who have it in our DNA, in a sense, to say, oh yeah, when trial and tragedy come, yep, we, we will grieve, we will go through the darkness, we will feel our brokenness for all that it is, and, and, and we will also then fight to know both God's transcendent goodness and his imminent goodness through it all. May God make us that kind of people who then would, who then would be like King David, who in Psalm 16 will declare, after saying, oh God, preserve me, oh God, be my refuge, he will then finish off by saying, well, isn't it true that in your presence there is fullness of joy and at your right hand pleasures forevermore. God, you are good in your imminent goodness. You are good in your transcendent goodness. We will fight to know it. Now, what we have as we begin the book of Ruth is incredible suffering. It's as though like God just packages all the visceral stuff <laughs> in these first five verses. It is just felt, heavy, difficult suffering. It's just good to know that the story doesn't end at verse the rest of the story will be uh, ways in which we will see, Lord willing, God's transcendent goodness and his imminent goodness through great difficulty. But even as the text opens up, it does give us a few lessons to understand. Like, what do we, what do, we do? What should we be careful of when it comes to suffering? I have two and actually fairly brief lessons that we can learn from these first five verses of the story of Ruth. The first is this. As I was praying through this, I should probably say it before I actually name the point. Um, 
even this morning, God just kind of tending to my own heart and saying, like, be sensitive to the sufferer. Um, and even thought, oh, I'm going to go back and rework stuff. And then it was like, no, okay, we'll just keep it in here. Because here, here's the point. When you, when you take, even pastorally take negative points <laughs> and, and you throw it out there on the heart that is suffering, it's like, oh, my goodness, it's like more, more suffering to endure. So my prayer is, even in going through these lessons, that it wouldn't feel like extra burden but it would be caution marks for you. If you remember, even uh, as we went through the Colossians series, God warns us, and you know, you think of the old faithful uh, walkway that, that goes out amidst those geysers, and it's, you, you have to be careful not to fall off, because many people do, and they end up getting burned and rushed to the hospital and all these kind of th stuff. And so there are these caution signs there, right, that, that are put up, not to be a burden, but to actually keep us from further suffering and further difficulty. So don't hear these even statements as being, oh, more burden, but just cautionary signs. You just say, be, be careful. Be careful in the midst of suffering. The first point is this. Don't underestimate God's purposes in your sufferings. So immediately we're dropped into this story with the phrase, in the days when the judges ruled. If you remember a few weeks ago when we were in, in uh, studying through Hannah, it's almost the same phrase, in the days of the judges. Uh, if you, it's to give us something of chronological context, like where's the story at in what God is ultimately doing, but it's also to tell us the, the condition of God's people and their hearts before God. In the day when the judges ruled. So God's people, they've been led out of Egypt. Joshua then has led them into the promised land. It's the promises that God gave to Abraham are now being realized, and yet as the promises are being realized for God's people and being brought into this new land flowing with milk and honey, it's a wonderful place of prosperity. It's that also now God's people are kind of becoming apathetic and complacent with their God. Now that they've They've realized something of God's promises and the goodness there. Now they've become apathetic. Now they're kind of walking away from God, not too concerned with the very God who's brought them into the partial fulfillment of his incredible promises. And so through the time of the judges, that refrain takes place on a handful of occasions, declaring the people did what was right in their own eyes. They're apathetic. God's provided, and in the goodness of God's provision, God's people have become apathetic. So what does God do throughout the time of the judges? He raises up rulers or judges who bring correction to God's people. And for three to four hundred years, there is this endless corruption and correction. Corruption and correction. It's a continual cycle for God's people. It's this yo-yo effect, this spiritual yo-yo effect for God's people. And as we know from the story of Hannah, as we saw a few weeks ago, it was also a time as well when prophecy and visions were few. God's manifest presence among his people was 
grieved. His prophetic voice, this unction among the people was silenced. God wasn't speaking. Have you ever been in a relationship where the other person ain't speaking? It's a bit, it's a bit torturous, right? It's like the worst thing you can do is not like say something. I want something. Even if I don't like what you're saying, I want you to speak because then we can do something with it. But when you don't speak, it's like we're stuck here. And for God's people, they are stuck. But folks, this is often what happens with God's people. God gives promise to his people. He brings them into something of the fulfillment of those promises. And instead of contending uh, for more, instead of holding on to those promises and stewarding more of, of, of the good of those promises, instead of joining God in what God is ultimately doing, what do they do? They sit back and become complacent in the good of the promise. The promise leads to complacency rather than this place of persistent faith to see the fullness of God's promises realized. God's people, they're now in the land, but they fail to contend for the further blessings that God intends to provide them. They fail to be a people of the promise and therefore they suffer the consequences. You see, at this time, the regulations of God's covenant with his people, the Mosaic covenant, involved this, this blessing and cursing, right? So Deuteronomy 28, I'll just kind of abbreviate it real quick. God says to his people, if you obey me, you will be set above the nations. You will be blessed in the city. You will be blessed in the country. Your womb, your fields, your barns, and your livestock will be blessed. But if you disobey me, the nations, they will overtake you. You will be cursed in the city and in the country. Your womb and your fields, your barns and your livestock will be cursed. So let me ask you, what's happening in these opening verses? Is it blessing or cursing? Cursing, right? There's, there's famine in the land. The land of promise now is under the curse of famine. And even in the Hebrew, the Hebrew is to catch the ancient reader's eyes in these moments, presenting us with all kinds of ironies just in these opening verses. And what we see is that Bethlehem is the word that actually means house of bread. Right? So you have Bethlehem, house of bread, and yet the bread basket is empty. There's famine in Bethlehem. It's this incredible irony. The, the, the author is bringing us into this tension, even in the first few verses of this text. It's obvious for the ancient reader, God's discipline is resting on his people. It's a time of great suffering. It's a time of great desperation. It's a time when God's people should be crying out to him, but they're not. Now, more to the point. This widespread suffering, a whole nation, as it were, under discipline. It's, it's this broad scope. When, it's, when, he, 
when he begins it by saying, in the day of the judges, and begins to talk about Bethlehem having a famine, he's, he's showing this widespread judgment that is upon God's people. Widespread suffering is, is upon God's people. But what we can't neglect to see in this story is that God, even in this widespread suffering, has eyes on a single family. And as the story unfolds, it unfolds in a way in which we see God intervening in the life of what will become this widow, Naomi, and her daughter-in-law, widowed daughter-in-law, Ruth. Vast suffering and judgment upon God's people, and yet God is pinpointed in his, in his view upon this family. It, it is though God has not lost sight of these individual lives in these individual circumstances when, when we would be tempted in these kind of situations to say, well, it's just widespread suffering. Why would God even care about me? Why would he even have me in his view? He certainly must not have me in his view because there's such widespread suffering. It is not true. It is not true. We must not underestimate God's goodness amidst our sufferings. We must not underestimate his purposes through our sufferings. Just, just look at what is happening. The reader is supposed to feel that broad stroke of suffering and yet see a God who is meticulously in tune with this single family, down to like the gnat-sized detail of their struggles. God is in it. God is there. God is, he's not forgotten his people. He's in the suffering with his people. Just because they're under judgment doesn't mean God has left his people. He is with his people. And folks, when it comes down to it, spoiler alert, right? As the story unfolds, what we will come to see in the life of Naomi and Ruth is something so wonderful, something so gracious, something so good, but in their own lifetime that they would never have the chance to comprehend. The story, this particular story of suffering will result in a king. In the time of the judges, oh, to have a king, a godly king who would finally lead us. That's been the desire. That's been the need of God's people. And through this story of suffering, God will raise up a king, King David. It's exactly what God's people need in this time of sinfulness. They need a true godly leader. They need a king after God's own heart. But this story of suffering won't only lead to a godly king who will lead God's people, but it will lead to the king, King Jesus, right? So in Matthew chapter 1, Ruth, and as we'll see the story unfold, her husband Boaz, they will be named among the genealogy of Emmanuel, God with us. It will be this seemingly insignificant suffering that will eventually lead to the most significant of events in all of human history, the coming of Christ, 
the Savior of the world, the beginning to the ending of all sufferings. He, this king, he will become accursed for us so that we might know the blessings of his presence. He will bring forth a better covenant, in other words. Not one of blessing and cursing, but one of safety and security, for he will become accursed so that we might know the blessing of God's presence. Folks, when it comes down to it, God never looks at our suffering the way we often look at our own sufferings, as though, oh, I'm just so insignificant. This suffering is just without purpose. It's dislocated from any and all reasoning. Folks, we may not realize the fullness of the reasons in, in our lifetime, just like Naomi and Ruth, they never realized it in their lifetime. But we do know in part, folks, we do know in part that there is a cosmic battle even now at work in our sufferings between light and darkness, between principalities and powers, and our hearts become the very turf upon which that cosmic battle rages. And therein our sufferings become charged with cosmic significance. Since the enemy uniquely works to exploit our sufferings, it's our sufferings that become some of the most unique platforms to bring glory to Jesus. The very king who is the beginning to the ending of all our suffering is the king who stands with us in every suffering to see the enemy defamed, to see his glory realized for the good of his people. Folks, the point being, don't underestimate God's purposes in your sufferings. Suffering is charged with cosmic significance beyond what the physical eye can see, and it carries eternal purpose beyond what this temporal life could ever make sense of. Don't underestimate God's purposes in your sufferings. Secondly, don't compromise God's promises in your sufferings. Don't compromise God's promises in your suffering. This is the second lesson that we learn as we get a little further into the beginning of this text. Uh, God's people, yeah, they're, they're in the land of promise. They've come to know something of the good of God's promises. <clears throat> they possess the land, but as we see, there is famine. The people are under discipline. So what does the man from Bethlehem seek to do? What does he do? He decides to pack up his family and say, hey, there are... There's greener grass on the other side over there. So where does he end up going? But he takes his family to Moab. Now, Moab, for the ancient reader, just to be straight, is like Sin City. What happens in Moab stays in Moab, right? It's one of those kind of places. Uh, doesn't have the best reputation, if you will, for God's people. 
Moab was only in scripture known for bad things. Here's a few of them. The Moabite people originated from an incestuous relationship between Lot and his oldest daughter. There's a good start, right? Genesis 19, you see his daughters get, get him drunk and eventually bear children through their father. This is where Moab, the Moabites, come from. Second, then, throughout the wilderness journey of God's people, Hebrew men take Moabite wives who then eventually lead them into idolatry, and with idolatry comes judgment. So you see that in the story on a few uh, different occasions. A little further on in the story of God's people being led out of Egypt is that as they're journeying through the wilderness, the king of Moab hires Balaam to curse Israel. You know that story from Numbers chapter 22 through 24. And then finally, throughout the time of the, the judges in particular, Moab oppressed Israel in Judges 3 and following. All to say, all to say that this family chose to leave the land of promise for Moab, the land of compromise. Again and again, you, you, you see this tension, Right? Of, of leaving the land of promise. Oh, God is supposed to be, you know, fulfilling his promise, and yet there's famine in the land, so what must we do? We must take matters into our own hands and go find those greener pastures, even if it means going to Sin City, even if it means going to a land of spiritual compromise. They allowed suffering to lead them to the land of compromise, Right? And to strengthen the force of this idea, we find that the man's name is, what's his name? Elimelech, which means, my God is king. Right? So you have Elimelech, who is, my God, for the ancient reader, they're, they're seeing that stuff. They're seeing, oh, this is the guy who, by way of name and reputation, should not be a man of compromise. His, his God's king. He is to follow his God. But what do we find actually taking place? Again, the irony. This is the beauty of Scripture. It's the, the literary power of Scripture. It's bringing us into all these tension points of irony. Elimelech, my God is king, is making compromises. He's not acting as though his God is king. But isn't it so often true when the going gets tough, we choose the land of compromise. Compromise, folks, we know it by experience, right? Have we been there at that point and place of compromise where, where it feels like we're in the vice of life and, and now we begin making decisions where God really isn't a part of those decisions, but I'm, gonna br I, I'm, I'm going to bring wisdom to bear here and now because I feel like you know, this is okay for me to just take the reins of life and determine what I need to determine. Compromise, folks, is a road of least resistance. It's easy when it comes down to it. Um, as I was studying through this, God kept bringing the, uh, the verse to mind where Jesus says, broad is the way that leads to destruction. It's the road of compromise. It's the way, it's the road of, it's broad and easy, right? But narrow is the path that leads to life everlasting. Following God, following Christ is not always easy. 
Yes, there is a peace that he grants us through the tumultuous times, but it is a strain. It is difficult. There is much suffering on that narrow pathway. So folks, if you're going to follow God and walk according to his promises, then it will inevitably be unpopular. It will be, in many seasons of life, difficult. There will be added sufferings along the way. It will be narrow, but it will be glorious. It will be glorious. Why? Because we will be living, as the words that we've been using a bit over the last uh, few weeks, we will be living in the pregnant potential of God's promises. You will be standing, if you will, in the riptide of his kingdom purposes, wrapped up in it, securely wrapped up in his good kingdom purposes. You will be standing, if you will, under the shadow of his wing, where it, yes, at times is dark, but nonetheless, it is glorious and it is secure. Folks, it's just like the uh, uh, Psalm 47, where the, where the author is, is saying, even though the earth gives way, now that feels like the narrow path at times. Man, things are just crumbling left and right. Life is falling apart, although the earth gives way, although the mountains are cast into the sea. Oh, we will not fear. <laughs> really? Yes, because God is our refuge and God is our strength, a very present help in trouble. It's not time to compromise. Right? It's time to grip hold of this king. It's time to grip hold of God's promises to us, to cling all the more to his promises. It's not time to make compromises. It's not time to take the reins into our own hands. It's not the time to exercise my wisdom. It's all the more for us to run to this book and say, I will hold fast to you, O God, trusting that you are holding fast to me. Folks, compromise is a road of least resistance, but therein it always makes it more difficult to return to that place of promise. It keeps you, in other words, longer than you want to stay. Just look at the story. What happens? End of verse 2, there's that stunning phrase. It says, and they remain there. It was supposed to be a short-term sojourn, and this short-term sojourn has now turned in to something of permanence. Folks, this is the reality of compromise. When we make compromises, it will most often keep you longer than you intend to stay. Oh, it's easy, and in the midst of it, it doesn't feel so bad, but it is like a web that holds us in. It's hard to leave compromise. Now, I want to be extra careful on this particular point. With compromise, it is the road of least uh, resistance. It, it, it also is that which will hold you longer than you want to stay. But with compromise comes consequence. And I want to be careful. Suffering isn't always the result of sin. Suffering is not always the consequence of sin. 
We see that in the story of Job. We see that in Jesus' own life, crying out loud. We, we, we see that in the man born blind. Why is this man born blind? Who sinned that this man was born blind? Jesus says, nope, no one. It's so that my glory might be revealed in these moments. Right? So we have to be careful. Suffering isn't always the result of sin. But it certainly can be. It certainly can be. Even in New Testament, even in the New Covenant, we see this playing out, this principle of, yes, blessing and cursing, of sowing what you reap. Acts 5, you have Ananias and Sapphira. Gone. They lied about what they had given to God. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul states, you have sickness among you and you have death among you because you're taking the Lord's table wrongly. I mean, there are these kind of statements in Scripture that we cannot just kind of pass by. Folks, when it comes to compromise, there is often consequence. If it's not the ultimate consequence of judgment, it is nonetheless circumstantial consequence. And in this text, it seems pretty clear that this is what is playing out. Verse 3 Elimelech has decided to take his family to Moab. They've made that compromise. Now they've remained in that land. And the consequence seems to be, verse 3, Elimelech dies. In this suffering, did they turn back to the Lord? Did Naomi say, okay, family, we are, we're going back to Bethlehem? Nope. They actually become more embedded, if you will, in the land of compromise. Naomi's sons marry Moabite women, which God prohibited in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And what happens is they spend another 10 years living in Moab. And what do we find after now this permanence of compromise? We find death, more consequence. Consequence came to both of Naomi's sons, Malon and Chilion, and the whole point of this is to demonstrate then at what cost will one finally return to God? Like at what cost will you finally start living according to the promises of God? I'll state it again. Suffering is not always a consequence of sin. Here it is and we have to take it to heart. How much cost, how much consequence must we endure before we say, God, your promises are better, even when life seems to be falling out, even when there's famine, even when suffering is surrounding us. Oh, God, your promises remain true. What must God do to shake us out of our compromise? What must he do to cause us to actually come home? Circumstances of suffering often lead to various levels of compromise. Compromise will keep us longer than we intend to stay, and compromise will eventually lead to various levels of consequence. For whatever reason, you know, in the midst of suffering, we tend to think that we have the license to just kind of do what we want to do. We can bend the promises of God, we can kind of launch out on our own. But what does that passage in Proverbs say? Trust in the Lord with all, all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Well, this will work. 
Well, is that what God, is that of God? Is that of his promises? Is that of his purpose? But it'll work. It doesn't matter. It may work and it may be incredible compromise that is only going to bring consequence. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. Not in some of them, in all your ways. Acknowledge him and he will direct your path. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord. Depart from evil. And listen, and it will be healing to your bones and refreshment to your flesh. (sighs) Does it always feel like that when you're just trusting the Lord? No, it's a narrow path. But the promise that is held out is, oh, it will be good. It will be peaceful. There will be healing to your bones and refreshment to your flesh. Folks, don't compromise God's promises in the midst of suffering. By way of conclusion, um, as we close in on this five verses of introduction, you're supposed to feel this, this emotional tug. You're, you're supposed to be screaming out as the reader, Naomi, just go home. Just go back to the land of promise. Stop living in this world of comfort. Go back, go back, Naomi, go back. And, and why? What, why are we supposed to be doing that? Because we're supposed to be sharing in something of God's own heart in these moments. Like the, the tension of the text is supposed to lean us into what is good and right and godly. You're supposed to share in God's heart in these moments. Oh, Naomi, go home for crying out loud. Go home. Go back to the land of promise. It may not be best, and there may be endless questions. And what does this future look like? I, I don't know. You know, all the men are dead, which pretty much means they have no, like, security. They have no insurance plan. They got nothing. But you're still supposed to be crying out as the reader, Naomi, go home. Crying out loud, go home. Folks, it reminds me, it reminds me of that prodigal son story where the son demands the inheritance from the father. Father's like, okay, here you go. And what does he do? He goes away to a far country, <laughs> very similar, to a far country, and he wastes the inheritance. And he comes to that place of rock bottom, you know. And again, in that place, as you read that story, you're saying, just go home, man, just go home. Live in the good of your father's blessings. Don't launch out on your own. No, live. Live in the good of your... Go home, man. Go home. And what do you see in that story is not just a father who is kind of sitting back, just busying himself with his own duties, but in some sense looking out to that horizon. Is my son coming home yet? Is my son coming home yet? He's looking. He's anticipating. He's wanting. He's desiring. And as that son hits the horizon... What does that father do? But he runs out, right? (laughs) He meets him. He does the the thing that patriarchs shouldn't be doing. He's running. He's picking up his robe, and he's running. Old men don't do that kind of stuff in that culture, but he does not care. 
about the culture. He doesn't care. Why? Because his heart is set on his son. He's all the more desirous to see his son come home. And as he runs out, he's embracing the son, putting the family robe on him, putting the family, family ring on him, won't even let him give his like spiel uh, to him. It, it's just shutting him down with love and acceptance and let's put on a party and, and let's enjoy this for my son was dead, but now he is alive. He is home. Folks, in a real sense, I want to say this to us. We are always home in Christ. We are always home in Christ. Unlike Elimelech, who left home to seek false blessing, Jesus left heaven to secure true blessing. And he left heaven to secure true blessing for you. So that in a real sense, with Jesus, you are always home. Through the ups and downs of life, through the unexpected of life, through the sufferings that are too great for us to bear, you are always home. Don't Leave home. Don't leave the land of promise for the land of compromise. For with Jesus, all the promises of God are yes and amen. Let me just read a few promises. God promises salvation to all who believe in his son. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. Right? God promises salvation when his people proclaim his gospel. God promises that all things will work out for good. That's that transcendent goodness. God promises, here's more of his goodness, comfort in our trials, 2 Corinthians 1. God promises new life in Christ. You are a new creation as we celebrated on Wednesday night. You are something different, defined differently in Christ. God has promised every spiritual blessing in Christ, Ephesians chapter 1. God has promised to finish the work that he has started in you. He hasn't given up on what he's doing in you or through you. He hasn't made a mistake and now kind of crunched up the plans and trying to draft new plans. That's not what he's doing. The work that he began, he will finish. God promises peace when his people pray, Philippians 4. God promises to supply our every need, Matthew chapter 6. Jesus will promise that with him there is rest. Jesus promises abundant life for those who follow after him. Jesus promises that, it, that there is eternal life, that he is going to prepare for us, for all who trust in him. Jesus then promised his disciples, power from on high to continue this life and mission that Jesus has set before us. And Jesus promised that he will return for us. These are the promises that we, we hold on to, like white knuckle, I'm going to hold on to your promises in the midst of darkness, in the midst of temptation. I, I, I can't afford compromise. Jesus is enough. He is enough. If you don't know Jesus, Jesus would be saying, come on home. <laughs> come on home. And if you've been distant from Jesus, guess what Jesus has said? Come on back. Come on home. Make your king happy. Make the father start a party. Right? 
for the son has left, but now he is home. Folks, may it be, may it be that we don't underestimate God's purposes in our sufferings. He is working things out on a cosmic level, beyond what our reasoning can, can attain to, beyond what this, 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 this temporal time can, can, can afford. We, he's working on a level beyond us, but we can know it has cosmic significance. It has cosmic significance. And don't underestimate or don't compromise God's promises in our suffering. Let's stay home and return home if we need to. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you even now declaring, God, you are good. Um, we, will, we will declare it until we know something of it by your spirit. We'll declare it until we see it evidenced in our sufferings. But, oh God, be a shield about us that we may not step into compromise, but always hold on to your promises. We would hold on to your truth. So God, make us, um, make us resilient, not in the sufferings, but make us resilient by your spirit that, that we exercise faith. We put that faith to work. We do the fighting, all the ups and downs. It's messy. It's messy. You've created us as emotional beings. You know that better than us. Our emotions are all over the place at times. But oh God, would, would we be coming to you in faith, with our frustrations, with our grief, all the, the multicolored emotions that we have, may we be running to you, fighting to know something of your goodness. Lord, that we wouldn't, we wouldn't just find rest through compromise. We'd hold on to you, go hard after you, knowing that you are good and your promises never fail us. Trust you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> and just by, by way of response, <clears throat> um, just take a few moments of, of quiet reflection and, and meditation. I wonder if there is anybody in here who would say, I've been suffering, I've been experiencing difficulty after difficulty, and I've got caught up in the weeds of that suffering, and I've failed to see the promise of God through it all. Or maybe in the midst of that difficulty, knowing those promises of God, knowing his good plan for your life, knowing the things that he has said he will do, You've stepped off that narrow path of obedience and you've sought relief in other, in other things that compromise what God has called you to. I just want to let you guys think about that for a moment. Put yourself, identify if you're one of those people um, so that you can seek the Lord and Seek him in, in confession and, and prayer for help um, just quietly in your seats for a moment. Just make this personal. Ask the Lord if there are any ways you've compromised his promises.
pray, Spirit of God, that you would, even right now, bring to mind ways that we might have forsaken you, ways that we might have compromised the things that you've called us to. Spirit, bring us to a place of confessing those things before you and call us to a place of running home to our Father God, running home to Jesus, knowing that even if there's temporary relief and compromise, it's nothing compared to the blessings of walking in obedience and fellowship with our God. And Lord, for those who, who've been caught up in the darkness and the weeds of suffering, Lord, give them eyes to see the beauty of your goodness. Help them not to be stuck kneeling down in the mud puddle when there's a great ocean just over the, the hill. Lord, help them to see beyond the suffering, to see that you are a great and a good God who loves and blesses.